let's get agreement that this is a strategic priority. That area of alignment and synergy can be very Looking important. The future, we're committed to expand valuation. time, there's still progress that needs to be made. This is Healthcare Strategies. Hello and welcome to Healthcare Strategies. I'm Olivia Kaler, Senior Editor of Life Science Intelligence and Pharma News Intelligence. Today we are speaking with Kate Steinley, a nurse practitioner and Chief Clinical Officer at Folks Health and also a former Planned Parenthood employee. Kate Steinley, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much. It's really great to be here. I'm excited for this conversation. Me too. It's such a huge topic and it's so important. So I'm just going to dive right in and I'm going to have you, if you can, provide just a brief description of gender affirming care and what it means to providers, what types of services are included in this as well. Sure. I think it's a great question to start because actually all care should be gender affirming. That includes primary care and oncology and behavioral health and anything that people can access to take care of their health and their well-being. That's not always the case. Not all care is actually gender affirming based on who you see as a provider and where you go and what you have access to in this country, depending on where you live. But in general, we can talk a little bit more through that. What does it mean to be an actual gender-affirming provider? But when we're talking about specifically gender-affirming care that is directed at trans and non-binary people seeking care to affirm their identity, any of the following can be kind of part of that. And it's not actually even necessary for people to do any of the ones that I'm about to list because some people's gender journey does not include taking medical steps or surgical steps, and it just includes social transition or just dressing in their gender identity. But I'll walk you through in terms of specific gender affirming care, again, what people seek on their gender journey. It's usually medical transition. What we consider part of that umbrella is gender-affirming hormones. So for people who are assigned male at birth, that would mean taking estrogen and possibly taking a testosterone blocker. Those medications then would bring about usually secondary sex characteristics like a puberty of that other hormone so that people's bodies more readily conform to what their gender identity is. There's also gender-affirming surgery, which includes a whole wide variety of surgeries. There's facial feminization surgery. There's top surgery, which might be breast augmentation for people who are wanting to achieve more breast tissue. There's top surgery, breast reduction, or mastectomy for removal of any of that chest tissue. There's bottom surgeries, and that might mean uh, orchiectomy, so removal of the testes. It might be creation of a penis, might be creation of a vaginal canal. So those are, again, are all things that some people take those steps. But one thing that I always like to point out, there is no step-by-step process that people have to go through to check a box to say, I'm reaching this end that everyone gets to, right? Everyone has a different process and it might include any of the things that I talked about above, or it might include none of those. The other pieces that are kind of auxiliary to this as well, some people do electrolysis or vocal training to adjust their voice to a different level so that it is more aligned again with their identity. 
I didn't think about that, but I guess you're right. Every patient has their own different goal and different resources probably dictate that whether they're even able to go the furthest point and have those surgeries that they may want, right? Exactly. It's resources because can they pay for it? Is there insurance coverage available? Do they have the support around them to be able to go through that? So there's healing from a surgery that might be a pretty intense surgery is going to require a lot of community support or like people support around you. And, you know, what if safety is an issue for you, right? What if you live with your family still that does not accept your identity and you want to be able to do a surgery or take hormones, what happens in that case? And so I think there's a lot of things that we always have to take into account that every individual person's journey is different. And we want to obviously remove obstacles. So people are choosing that freely, which ones apply best to them. But we also don't want to force anyone down a path that doesn't apply to them. That makes total sense. You've already talked a little bit about the types of services that were included in gender affirming care. And you said that there's all types of services they're seeing. So I feel like we could just do an episode completely on that alone. Right. So, you know, don't feel like you have to get too in depth with that. But can you also like explain what is gender transition and then what are these patients experiencing during this transition time? Sure, sure. What I'll talk through is taking hormones. So that's often what people are talking about in terms of medical transition is starting hormones and what happens to your body during that process. So it's a multi-year process similar to puberty that many of us have gone through with the hormone that was created in our body. It takes years to get those secondary sex characteristics that develop. So when somebody is going through a medical transition, again, a hormone transition, the process is dependent on a few factors and how they experience that. One, it's dependent on the age that someone starts hormones. If I have somebody who's 20 and who's going through gender affirming hormones versus someone who's 70, there's a lot of things that sex hormones can do and kind of provide more movement in a body that's younger than in a body that's already lived many decades of a life that is predominant with a different hormone. So that's one thing. I think somebody's dosage obviously is affecting the rate of changes that they experience. And then there's always that individuality of how does your body respond to medications? This is a medication that you are taking for a medical condition. And so treatments are always individual. And so when I think about, let's say somebody who's taking testosterone, what I always do, and this is somebody who's assigned female at birth, their hormone that's predominant in their body is estrogen that is produced by the ovaries and then we introduce testosterone into their body. What we do before that is we make sure we're going over all of the permanent changes to be expected, the reversible changes, some side effects that they want to know, what are some of those increased risks, kind of go over their medical history. So that's an evaluation that we do with all of our patients first and engage in conversation with them about it, right? So what exactly are your goals for taking hormones? What is it that you are most excited about and are looking forward to achieving? And is there anything that you are concerned about? Anything that you do not want? When we think about things that testosterone will do for someone's body, it's gonna increase hair growth throughout your body. It's gonna increase libido. It's gonna change fat distribution. It's gonna make people who menstruate stop bleeding. And it's going to change some facial structure, not necessarily bone structure, but how people's fat is distributed on their face. So it's going to change that as well. 
And so what I do is I go through all of those pieces to make sure I understand what they understand as well. And that there isn't a misunderstanding. Nothing happens overnight. So I always make sure that people understand that while these are incredibly effective and obviously life-saving medications for people who have gender dysphoria, and I wish that we had a magic wand to get people there faster after they've experienced years or a lifetime of dysphoria, nothing happens that way. And so I really like to set those expectations about hey, here's what you're probably going to experience in the first few months. Here's what might take the longest. Somebody who might be really excited about growing facial hair, because that's one of those kind of obvious signs for other people in terms of that masculinity sign. I often offer to them, that is one of the places on your body where hair takes the longest to grow. And so please be aware of that. Here's some of the other things that will happen before that. And then it's also dependent on genetics, right? Some people have genetics in their family that have a lot of facial hair. And some people might never, even after years and years of testosterone, might never grow a full beard or have that. And that might not be their goal. And then I also talk about it that way because there's some people who want to take testosterone who don't want a beard or who don't want facial hair. And so how do we maneuver through that to make sure, again, we are providing the most accurate information for our patients so that they are really clear on what these medications can do and can't do, and that they're really clear with me about when they might be concerned or when they might not be. So I always offer to people when I'm talking about any medications with them is there's nothing that you can tell me that's going to scare me and disqualify you from this. However, I do want to know if you are feeling worried about X, Y, or Z. I do want to know if there's been an update to your medical history that might make me want to engage with you differently about your risk profile so we can make an even more informed decision. And having that kind of conversation with patients, I think, really just allows them to breathe a little bit of a sigh of relief because I think a lot of people come into this kind of care because historically it was this way where you had to kind of prove and meet this certain really extensive list, making sure that everyone fit a certain mold, right? And we know that people don't fit molds and having that individualized care model where I'm really listening and engaging with that person makes people feel more comfortable. And that's really as a provider of clinical care, having someone feel comfortable with me is actually safe. That is what is clinically safe because if they don't feel comfortable, they will withhold and they will hide. And therefore I won't be able to provide them clinically safe care. Right. It seems like just maintaining that transparency. And I like that you have been giving your patients a very realistic expectation of, you know, what they can expect to see um, based on the medications that you give. Right. So that seems to be just the at least rule of thumb for any provider. Maintain that transparency, make sure your patients are comfortable and really set a realistic expectations for their goals. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think that that is something where the realistic expectations and then just this feels like it should be a given for anyone who is a clinician, but listening, right? If you create a situation where people feel like you are going to listen fully to what is going on for them, you're creating that avenue. And it's a very different structure. And I think this is what we do in our model of care at folks in general, not just for providing hormone care, but for anything. There's not this power over, right? Like it's not the clinician is up here and passing down information and just telling the patient what they should do. 
We are really partners with what is going on with that patient to say, hey, for you, I want to know what's going on so we can actually engage in conversation. Again, that is clinically safe care. It is not clinically safe to just pass out something to a patient and say, this is what I think as a provider, because what they're going to do is not follow those instructions. They're not going to engage with their health. They are not going to make positive health changes when something is just passed on to them. Yeah, that makes total sense. Well, that's perfect because as we transition into my next question, there is a 2018 study that was published in Obstetrics and Gynecology that said that up to 20% of trans men had to educate their healthcare professionals in order to access the care that they needed. Now, I'm all for patients being informed about the care that they need, but this finding is honestly disheartening and frankly discouraging for the patient population. So as we wrap up the year 2022, do you feel that these patients are going to be more supported by medical providers than they are now? And then if you can, how can providers stay educated if their organizations aren't providing them with the proper information? Yeah. In general, we are moving towards a place in medical care where It is well known now, the health disparities that this entire community faces. And so I think it is being taken into account in a different way than it ever has been. So that is a positive movement. This community still is really well aware that they often are the ones who know more about their bodies and the medications that might affect their bodies and the care. And just like mostly because the community is really well resourced internally and shares information across each other. Whenever there's kind of a disenfranchised community, the way that they often gain power is sharing information amongst themselves, disseminating it that way because no one else is doing it for them. So that is still the case. And it's actually a wonderful thing. And kind of one of the reasons why folks exist is to be able to engage in that conversation with our community to be like, what's going on? How can we continue to share information across and be able to lift each other up? One thing that I would love for all of us to get to is that gender-affirming hormone care or gender-affirming care, just like I started out saying, should be widespread. It should be on every intake form, should be gender-affirming, which means that there should be no assumption of somebody's gender identity, no assumption of somebody's pronouns, no assumption of their sexuality. In fact, open-ended questions that show people that you are actually taking their identity into consideration from the way that you sort out and you way you organize your intake. That's not the case everywhere, but I think we're going in that direction where there is more and more understanding that care needs to be about allowing for everyone to be seen in that intake when they're approached by that person at the front desk, when the medical assistant takes their blood pressure, how do we, again, help people's identities feel the most empowered? A lot of the clinicians that we have on the Folks team are experts in this care. They have been doing this for decades, but in general, like this is not rocket science medical care. It's pretty simple in terms of how to prescribe, how to change doses, how to review labs, what to do there. And so I think what I'd like it to get to in order for us to be able to allow for access across this entire country and to minimize the barriers that people have is that to understand that you do not need to be a specialist to provide gender-affirming hormones. First of all, you need to be a kind and open person who listens to their patients. You need to know how to take some of the education into your own hands because you probably didn't get a full education in medical school or nursing school. 
But you also need to understand, yeah, there are fewer studies for this actual community. So we do have extrapolated data. And so we have to kind of take all of that as a clinician to understand what are the risks that we're actually talking about and how can we clearly and evidence-based have these clear conversations with our patients. I think that's the main thing is like, this is not about specialized care necessarily. There are care deserts that still exist, and there are definitely going to be patients who experience subpar care. There's going to be patients who experience harassment when they go to a clinic or a provider's office. There are people who are still refused healthcare because of their identity or their sexuality. All of those things are true. But again, I think we're moving in a different direction. And I think when your follow-up question, which was about like, what should clinicians or what should providers do to be able to help educate themselves? There's a, a bunch of options. One, you know, folks, what we try to do through our library platform that's open to the general public is we publish a lot of articles that really try to take all of the evidence-based medicine that we have out there and put it into language that is accessible to the patients but it also can be shared amongst clinicians who then can pass it on to their patients, right? So for instance, like taking PrEP and being on estrogen, is there anything we need to know about that? Great. There's an article here. You as a clinician can read it. You can pass it on to your patient. Your patients can read it and access it through the website. There's a lot of conferences. WPATH, which is the World Professional Association of Transgender Health, has an annual conference, as does the U.S. version of that, which is USPATH. UCSF has a biannual conference that is wonderful as well and very much covers all of the evidence that's been going on in the past couple of years to elevate that to the rest of the clinicians. Fenway, Gay and Lesbian Medical Association, all of those have conferences and tracks. They also have different learnings that you can take as like modules as a clinician to be able to learn. So, you know, for people who don't have that access in their actual setting where they work, but they want to bring it in, there's external learnings that they can have. And Folks works with a lot of other providers to be able to help create those trainings for their clinician team or for their frontline staff. Also, lately I've been seeing all this stuff about hormone therapies and how it's affecting bone health and bone density. Is there any truth to this? Is it an issue? One of the things that affects and keeps bone density strong is sex hormones. So either testosterone or estrogen. And so having a sex hormone in your body is what is going to, in the long term, not have you get osteoporosis or osteopenia as an older person, which is one of the reasons, quick little biology lesson, why when somebody's going through menopause, their bone density starts decreasing because their hormone level is decreasing, right? Mm -hmm. And so when we think about it, when we are actually doing hormone therapy for people, if somebody's body was born assigned female at birth and produces estrogen for people who are trans or non-binary and who need testosterone for gender affirmation, we're putting another sex hormone inside their body, which is testosterone. And so it doesn't matter to your bones what sex hormone is in there, just that there is one that is going to be over the course of your life. I think one of the things what probably is when people are going through puberty blockers, right? So when kids who are trans or non-binary, gender non-conforming, are not yet ready because puberty-wise, they're not at the age that kids would be going through puberty, but we want to block their natal puberty, 
they would go on puberty blockers for a certain amount of time. That does two things. One, it puts them at the right time zone to actually start hormones for gender affirming hormones at the right age. And it also gives the family time to kind of adapt to that support system around them to make sure they have that family therapy situation. Everyone being there, having that therapist in there, having that clinical psychologist, having people do that evaluation to make sure that that kid who, you know, it is hard to make a decision about your entire life and what that's going to look like as a small kid, but kids really know a lot of stuff about themselves. But those puberty blockers give them that paused time to be able to then figure out what the next step is. Is it to remove the puberty blockers and continue on with the puberty that they were born with? Or is it to remove the puberty blockers and start gender affirming hormones? So the only caveat that I just would put in there in terms of that biology lesson is there might be a small window of period where people are having hormones blocked. But that small window period is not going to affect bone health over the course of time, unless someone stays on puberty blockers for their entire life, which no one in their right mind would ever do or prescribe or monitor. Gotcha. Okay. That makes plenty of sense. Moving into my next question, I guess it goes with the blockers and the hormone therapies that we were talking about is this care covered by medical insurances usually? Yeah. The National Center for Transgender Equality has a lot of really great information on what is going on nationally as well as state by state in terms of regulation. So for federal and state laws, it prohibits discrimination in healthcare and insurance because you're transgender. So what that means is that health plans can't actually exclude transition-related care. And it also means that Healthcare providers are required to treat you with respect and making sure that that's according to your gender identity. So that is the reality. It is required to be under health insurance plans and clinicians who you go to are supposed to treat you as your gender identity that you identify with. Is that the case everywhere? No, because we know access is not even across the entire country. We know that not everyone is going to have access to an affirming provider. And sometimes health insurance plans have different levels of coverage. There's different levels. There's caveats that always kind of find their way in there. But, you know, what I would say to the listeners is that if there are any concerns that people have about their insurance plan and coverage, best place to go check out and get particular help is the National Center for Transgender Equality. They will be able to figure out how to guide you through advocating for yourself under insurance and being able to make sure that those types of coverage are allowed. Thank goodness for resources like that, especially someone who just realizes they want to go through a transition. Maybe they may be young. They may not know a whole lot. Having that resource and just being able to go and read and like, oh, other people feel this way too. Mm -hmm. I'm not alone. And that's so great. Well, as we wrap up, I would like your thoughts and just over the next 10 years, how do you see gender affirming care changing? Will the transgender and gender non-binary patients see an increase in care quality? Yeah, my kind of 10 year vision is that what we're seeing right now with the younger generation is more and more people are identifying as part of the LGBTQ community. More and more people are identifying as gender variant or gender nonconforming. 
And that younger generation, as they continue to grow, they need more and more healthcare. So this is like a requirement to adapt our healthcare system to the growing needs. I know this is not a visual podcast, but there is a great image that was shared, I think, in the New York Times at some point about left-handedness and how when left-handedness became less of a thing that was ostracized, right, then you see that all of a sudden the population of people who are left-handed grew. It's not that all of a sudden biology changed and people all of a sudden, you know, were born as left-handed people. It's just that society welcomed them and they decided to say, okay, I am left-handed instead of being put into this right-handed box. And that same thing is happening for the youth. In general, the youth are seeing that this is actually a safer place for them to be who they are and who they feel they are. And so we're seeing that more gender variance is out there. And again, this is not because it's out in the media and people want to be cool and decide to do this. This is that they actually feel safe enough to be who they are. And so I think knowing that the trajectory is one direction. People who decide, oh, I'm not going to see or care for trans or non-binary people, they would be the siloed off people who are like, let's not go to that place. Like, oh, nobody goes there anymore because they're way back in the dark ages or blah, blah, blah. I don't mean that to say I want anyone to be siloed off, but I just want people to get on board. And so I think there's that piece from COVID and during the time of telehealth blossoming. We have seen a wide growth of telehealth across the entire country. And that is super beneficial in terms of access. So just like what you talked about, people who are in rural areas who don't have parents who can drive them to three hours or don't feel supportive or don't feel safe going three hours away to a city to access a gender affirming hormone provider can do that through telehealth. And that is only going to continue because we've seen how safe and effective and how much that has increased access for people. And so again, that direction is kind of one directional. Like we see past two and a half years, People accessing care through telehealth is allowing them to do this on their own time. They don't have to take work off. They don't have to involve somebody else in taking care of their kid for a certain amount of time. They can do this from the safety of their own home and engage with a clinician who, you know, really sees them and understand what, what's happening there. And I think both of those things in terms of just like the younger generation, as well as telehealth access is bringing us in the direction where my hope in 10 years is no one has a waiting time to get into see a gender affirming provider. Again, there's more gender affirming providers because that's the way that we're going. And there's more telehealth out there for people to access. Gotcha. That's a good point that you brought up that I kind of want to circle back to. I feel like we've heard this narrative where, oh, everyone's trans or everybody's part of the LGBTQ community now. And it's like, well... No, just because there's awareness and it's talked about. For example, I'd like to share a personal story. If you don't mind, my father is gay. And growing up in the 70s as a gay man, mm -hmm. rural Ohio, right. nobody talked about being gay. He was from a Catholic family. He had no support. And right. going from that to where we are today, yep. where he's able to marry his husband and they've, you know, they've been together for 20 years now. And back then it was just so abnormal that I can only hope that that's where we're going to be with the trans community yep. in the coming years. Right. Because people are becoming more aware. We see it on television. We see it in TV shows. You know, we see it on movies, on podcasts. <laughs> we're listening. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. People are aware of the trans 
community and everybody that's involved. So I think that spreading the awareness is also probably a huge aspect of that, like you said. For sure. Visibility, awareness. And, you know, again, the the piece that comes with visibility is also visibility of attacks against it. And people kind of like, there's now like more of a pressure, but this community has always weathered attacks against their visibility for decades. And I think that, you know, the strength that comes from being part of this community and understanding like we are together in this and we are moving forward. And now there's a whole lot of allies and there's a whole lot of people who believe in this type of care and understand about people's humanity, because really that's what it is. Do you believe in people's humanity and being good to them? Great okay, let's listen to them. And they are telling us what they need. And that is the direction, again, I think that we're going. So I don't have any foolish idea that everyone in 10 years is going to be a fully accepting person or, but I do think that the direction is towards care for this community. Absolutely. I'm excited to see the access increase. Kate, it's been wonderful. This conversation, I feel I could, I could speak to you all day long, I swear. Thank you for setting aside the time today to join us on Healthcare Strategies. This was seriously an insightful conversation. Fantastic. I had a great time. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. And for our listeners, feel free to reach out to us at A-K-A-Y-L-O-R at extelligentmedia.com to share your thoughts on today's topic. You can also use that email to share any healthcare-related questions or stories that you would like us to consider covering. And if you have the time, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and give us a five-star review if you enjoyed today's podcast episode. Thanks for tuning in. Catch you later. This has been an Extelligent Healthcare Media production. 